we view this phase of our company as being a decarbonization phase. Mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, the next few phases might involve carbon capture to a certain extent, right. but really a focus on, um, you know, cleaner generation development of storage to really firm up some of that renewable generation. And that's going to probably be into the 2030s, I think. And kind of bridging where we are today to there is going to hopefully be long duration flow batteries before we get more into pumped hydro and things like that. This is Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. This is episode 04141 of the Flux Capacitor. We feature discussions about the future of the business of electricity on this podcast and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. Once again, this podcast was not recorded face-to-face -face, but using Zoom. This is the fifth podcast in a series shining a light on climate change, net zero greenhouse gas commitments, and what the implications may be for those net zero commitments. Over this podcast series, I'm trying to unpack these GHG emissions reduction targets and net zero commitments to understand what they mean for the governments that make these commitments, the potential impacts on the companies that produce and deliver electricity, how it will change energy use, and what it may mean for the customer. For this fifth podcast in the series, I'm joined by John Cousinioris, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Transalta. Transalta owns, operates, and develops a diverse fleet of electrical power generation assets in Canada, the United States, and Australia. We talk GHG reduction targets, the phasing out of coal generation, existing and emerging technologies, and the challenges of meeting demand in the winter. As usual, we close the conversation with some book recommendations, and John turns the tables on me to find out what I'm reading. Here is my conversation with John, recorded in July 2021. John, welcome to the podcast. Francis, really happy to be here. Thanks for uh, inviting me today. So I thought maybe we'd start just for the listener. I don't know if Transalta, I've had the pleasure of working with people from Transalta for, for, for decades. But for the listener, uh, a little bit about Transalta, what the business is and where you're located. Happy to do that. Uh, thank you. We are an independent power producer. We are based in uh, Calgary, uh, Alberta. Uh, we have, uh, oh, about 8,000 or so megawatts of generation uh, worldwide. And I say worldwide. Although most of our generation is in Canada, we do have significant operations in the United States and also in Australia. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have an interesting mix uh, of assets. We uh, are probably, or at least we, we were probably, Canada's largest coal-fired generator right. uh, of electricity. Uh, we're a significant natural gas generator of electricity, but we own um, uh, almost all of the hydro generation in Alberta and hydro generation in a number of other jurisdictions, BC, right. uh, Ontario. Uh, we are the largest wind generator in Canada. Uh, so we're a little bit schizophrenic. We have a strong uh, renewables arm as well as sort of a more traditional thermal uh, generating which um, arm, which has been in transition over the course of, oh gosh, the last uh, five or six years. Um, and, and I'm sure we'll be talking a little bit more about that. And uh, really, there's two companies. There's the parent, which is Transalta Corporation, which is listed 
on the Toronto Stock Exchange and the New York Stock Exchange, our enterprise mm -hmm. value is roughly $10 billion. Okay. And then there's Transalta Renewables, which is listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange and Transalta owns about 60% of Transelta Renewables and Transelta Renewables has most of uh, what we think of as our clean contracted assets, mm -hmm. um, which would be contracted natural gas, which is about mm, a little bit over 40% of the cash flow. And then the rest of the cash flow would be uh, contracted renewables. Uh, so solar and wind, a little bit of uh, uh, hydro in there as well, whereas the parent company uh, has a more merchant um, Alberta focused uh, okay. direct ownership stake. Right. And that, that's very different from what the company was, say, you know, 20 years ago. I think uh, I think that's right. In fact, uh, I think this will be the first year where um, our cash flow from um, renewables and hydro mm -hmm. will be the majority of the cash flows of the company. So, wow. Francis, to your point, that is quite a transformation. And for us, it began with the clean leadership plan, which um, the previous government in Alberta uh, initiated in the middle part of the last decade, yeah. um, which really resulted in a decision to see all of the coal fire generation in the province uh, ceasing to operate by 2030. Mm -hmm. That resulted in us uh, really focusing on renewables as uh, a growth avenue for the company right. and um, also then shifting our coal fire generation uh, either to natural gas or actually having elements of it uh, being shut down. So some of the older units have actually been uh, been phased out now. So quite a quite a journey uh, for our company for sure. And, and we're not quite done yet. This is the big year in terms of our coal to gas uh, conversions. And interestingly for us, and, and folks don't often realize it, um, we're actually ceasing all coal-fired uh, generation and all coal mining at the end of this year. So we will be 100% off coal uh, at the end of 2021, with the only exception being a coal-fired plant, a significant plant that we have in Centralia in Washington State. Okay. Uh, we had two large units there. One of them was shut down uh, at the end of last year through an arrangement, an agreement, actually, that we have with the state there as part of their greening efforts. And the mm -hmm. second one, uh, Centralia 2, is scheduled to shut down at the end of 2025. And that'll be our last uh, coal-fired uh, plant Um in, in, in any jurisdiction in which we operate. So quite a transition. Uh, that's really interesting. I know we, we wanted to talk and we'll, we'll get to net zero 2050, but uh, I, I, I want to pull this thread. You had until 2030 uh, in, in Alberta to, uh, to, to move out of coal, but you're doing it by the end of 2021. What, uh, what was the impetus to do it in such an accelerated fashion? You know, um, with carbon pricing, so one thing I would say is the carbon pricing regime that the um, that has been imposed really by the federal and provincial governments, I think has been effective uh, and has been quite a, a focus certainly for our company uh, okay. to get off coal right. and uh, simplify our operations and really move to um, where the world is moving in terms <laughs> of a reduction and really a decarbonization. And really, we view this phase of our company as being a decarbonization phase. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, the next few phase, phases might involve carbon capture to a certain extent, right. but really a focus on, um, you know, cleaner generation, uh, development of um, storage to really firm up some of that renewable generation. And that's going to probably be into the 2030s, I think. 
and kind of bridging where we are today to there is going to hopefully be long duration flow batteries before we get more into pumped hydro and things like that. Right. But really what it was, was a determination of the, um, of the company uh, to really go to where, um, you know, uh, communities, society is expecting us to, be, to go to and be there as quickly as we possibly can, um, simplifying our own operations in the, in the process. And as I mentioned earlier, the, um, um, the signal that uh, the carbon price um, provided was a pretty strong one. And we're not alone. I think, uh, you know, the other thermal players in the province are, are basically with us. Yeah. And uh, by and large, you'll see uh, coal fire generation in the province, uh, you know, being phased out in, in total in the next year or so. Yeah, I spoke to Capital Power as part of the podcast a couple of weeks back as well. And, and, and again, down the same path. yeah. And, and, you know, again, uh, just uh, the, the time frame, uh, I, I, it's very encouraging that it's, that it's being done so very quickly. I just, I did find it a little surprising that, um, you know, 2030 uh, was, was the target and uh, it's being done in such a, such a, an accelerated manner uh, right across, yeah. right across the board. I think Francis, it's fair. I mean, one of the things that folks, um, um, probably aren't aware of, um, but I think the CEA uh, was instrumental to, and, and as you know, um, you know, you, you, there was a lot of constructive dialogue, uh, both as an industry group, the group, the coal fire generators in Alberta worked together to kind of develop the regime for uh, coal to gas conversions and kind of the life yep. cycle of those um, facilities. And as I mentioned, the CA was involved in those discussions and, and was helpful and constructive in that, uh, mm -hmm. in the consultations. What I, what I would say is it was really part of the deal. I mean, I think, um, you know, from a federal government perspective, uh, their view was that they would facilitate the coal to gas conversions and extend the life of the units into the 2030s, the early 2030s and into the latter part of the 2030s right. as coal to gas converted units. But the deal was to kind of do them sooner rather than later to get those emissions reductions gotcha. um, that we could in exchange for the, for the accelerated life. So um, really, I think it's a, it's a, it's an example, I think of a governmental policy that was developed in tandem, you know, with industry. And I think it has been effective. I, I, I think it has had the, um, the intended result. And from an Alberta perspective, as a, as a province that is a significant natural gas um, producer, yeah. uh, you know, increasing the demand effectively for that product in the province mm -hmm. uh, is also sort of an ancillary benefit to uh, the transition that we've made. So in the, that's within a context of uh, an, a recent announcement that Transalta has made towards carbon neutrality by 2030. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, also, I saw that uh, the, the plan is to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 60% below 2015 levels by 2030. What are the immediate changes uh, that are going to be taking place in operations to achieve that? Um, you've, you've got your coal to gas uh, that's taking okay. place, but, but what else is going to move you to that 60% cut? And then, and then carbon neutrality, which is a yeah. stretch for everyone. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting, so I'm glad you asked the question. I mean, I think um, when I talk about emissions, I think it's only in that context that you truly begin, I think, Francis, to understand sort of the transformation mm -hmm. that the company has been on. So if you go back to sort of 2005 or so, yeah. um, you know, kind of between, before 2010 even, um, we would have emitted globally over 40 megatons of CO2 a year. So okay. a pretty significant level of emissions. And in fact, you know, our Canadian emissions would have been in that 30, maybe just under 30 megaton range. So pretty, um, pretty dramatic 
Uh, then, you know, when you add the United States sort of Centralia and, and what we're doing in Australia, that number is significantly higher than that, nudging up towards um, 40 megatons. So when you think of that ourselves as a company, you know, one of the larger emitters of CO2 in Canada traditionally, um, roll forward to 2022, um, we'll be down to about 14 globally. Wow. And from, from 40 uh, or over 40. And in fact, um, you know, the reality of that would be that it's probably only, a you know, how much of that, uh, a good chunk of that uh, uh, is actually outside of Canada. Okay. So in fact, our Canadian numbers, and I don't have that, that specific number uh, in front of us is, is probably in that 10 range, I think of that. Mm -hmm. um, so when we look to the coal to gas conversions by the end of this year and into 2022, and when we look at certainly the shutdown of our Centralia operation in Washington state, you know, as a coal fire generator right. um, before January 1 of 2026, uh, we will be sub 10 at that wow. point in time, probably in that nine, you know, megaton uh, sort of range. So, um, you know, because of the work that we are doing, uh, we will hit that target for sure. Mm -hmm. And in fact, um, we think that we'll be reducing our greenhouse gas emissions uh, by over 70% by 2022. Uh, forget wow. about okay. uh, uh, 2030. So quite an accomplishment, yeah. I think, from, from our perspective. Um, so something we're, we're, we're really proud of uh, as we go forward. Now, I think you asked the question about sort of, you know, carbon neutrality and how we're um, mm -hmm. thinking about that. We did set uh, a carbon neutrality goal for our company uh, uh, for um, 2050. And, you know, look, I think we'll get there, Francis. Mm -hmm. uh, when I think of an emissions profile that has gone, you know, north of 40 to sub 10 right. um, before the end of this decade. And when I look at just the life cycle of, you know, those coal to gas units, which are going to come off you know, in the 2030s, for example, under the governmental mandate, that number will shrink. And, you know, when we when we look at our hydro generation and our wind generation and we sort of tally all of that up, I think we will, uh, it's not an outlandish target. I think we will get there candidly. I think we'll get there before uh, uh, 2050. So um, so anyway, that's, that's, uh, that's the way we're focused on it going forward. What kind of a reaction have you been getting from the public, from the investment community, from stakeholders? You know, it's um, it it has been a pretty powerful one. I mean, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's funny. You know, perception sometimes lags uh, reality, and really, we've really stepped up because we're proud of the transition that we've made uh, from a from an emissions perspective. Uh, and when people hear about the story, they are genuinely um, uh, and pleasantly um, surprised, and uh, frankly, pretty impressed. To be honest, I. Uh, you know, it's a source of pride for our employees. It's also a, um, a source of transition for a number of employees. There for sure have been employment impacts. I mean, we, we used to run one of the largest open pit, I think it was the largest open pit coal mines in the country mm -hmm. that had 700 employees. That becomes a reclamation operation, you know, early next year. And you go from 700 to maybe 50 right. uh, employees. So, so the employment impact is pretty dramatic. And, and as we've, um, you know, rationalized some of the coal to coal units and are converting it to gas. It's a simpler uh, operation. There are employment benefits, but in general, people uh, can't believe it. Uh, whether we tell uh, you know, government officials or investors, 
uh, frankly, employees, especially younger employees, which are very much focused on, on the ESG credentials of, uh, of a company. The reception has been overwhelmingly possible. And, you know, it, it also helps us be brought into the debate um, because people see what we've done and just kind of want to hear about the journey and uh, what our thoughts are as we go forward. And we'll talk maybe a little bit about, about that. I think there are some shortcomings in the way that we're thinking mm-hmm. as a country, for example, on getting to 2030. Um, but overwhelmingly positive, Francis. Like, um, you know, I can't, I can't, um, I think we've been um, surprised isn't the right word, but, but, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, pretty proud of the reaction we've gotten, which has been sort of overwhelmingly positive. And just to give you context, um, our Canadian greenhouse gas emissions reductions, which we'll have, let's say, by the start of next year, in mm-hmm. terms of an annual run rate, are 10% of Canada's Paris commitment, just our right. company yeah. by itself. Now, unfortunately, those reductions aren't showing up in our national numbers. So yeah. it, 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 it just shows you how hard hitting those targets are going to be. Um, but, but certainly, we've, we've contributed. Yeah, yeah, and we I think we've seen that right across the electricity sector as well. Where electricity is the only sector that's 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 matter and and is beating those Paris commitments overall. You know, more than forty percent right. reduction, um, but right. it it's being uh, counter you know, counterbalanced with uh, with increases in other sectors. So that's right. the challenge overall for the for the economy. Um, and, and then I think I think what you just said is really an important point. I mean, I think our sector has really done its part, and I know. Yeah. Um, you know, I know there's a lot of hydro in the country uh, as well, which certainly contributes to what we do in the nukes, obviously, uh, in Ontario. But but I think almost in every jurisdiction now, uh, you know, the pathway, certainly if you look at the carbon intensity per megawatt that's actually generated, it continues yep. uh, to your point, Francis, that that downward glide, glide yeah. path for sure. Yeah. John, before we go too much further, uh, can I ask you about your journey? It's one of the things that I ask a lot of people that come on to the, the, uh, the podcast that think they, the listener uh, would be interested uh, in, mm-hmm. in what your personal journey has been. I'm, I always uh, you know, joke uh, to people on the podcast, when you, when you were a young lad in the playground, did you always dream of, of growing up and running a large independent power producer? Uh, oh, <laughs> Um, the answer to that question is an easy one. No, <laughs> I, did. I, I did not. You know, I, you know, it's an interesting um, question, Francis. And I, you know, I tell friends and I tell my bro- my son uh, and his friends. I've got a, I've got um, two young daughters, but mm-hmm. but I've got an older son who's in university uh, in Ontario. He's at, he's at Queens right now. Mm-hmm. Just kind of the path. And you know, yeah, I don't think you ever know really yeah. where your journey um, is going to go. I think it's a it's a question of. Um, a little bit of luck, a little bit of hard work, and a little bit of flexibility. I think, in terms of you know where you go, and and um, you know sometimes things go your way. I'm a, a lawyer by training. I, um, uh, you know, when I got into university, I thought uh, practicing law seemed interesting to me, so mm-hmm. I, I I did that for a number of years and was a commercial lawyer. I, I did mergers and acquisitions and capital markets work, um, securities law uh, work for the longest time, and it was in uh, 2012, um, when I was a, uh, a corporate department head for one of the large law firms uh, in the country, that I got a call from a headhunter mm-hmm. saying, "You know, would you be interested in um, meeting with the CEO of Transalta?" And you know, wasn't looking uh, at all, um, but I did um, meet 
uh, with Don Farrell, my predecessor. And I still remember the first meeting, uh, Francis, where um, she was running a bit behind. I think she was interviewing a few people and she asked me why I wanted to join uh, Transalta. And I kind of went, whoa, I'm, I'm not sure that I do. Why should I join uh, Transalta? Which um, uh, was probably the only person that kind of responded to that question in the way that, uh, that, that I did. And, you know, we we started talking about um, a variety of things and culture in particular, but roll forward. I ended up joining the company in December of, of 2012 and it came in as the chief legal officer and over time always had an interest in, in, in business and studied business as an undergrad. And, and uh, I did my MBA with my, with my law degree. So, so I was always had a bit of a bent uh, that way. And um, you know, I, I, I'm more from being a, um, chief legal officer to, uh, I, I like to describe it as a bit of an officer at large uh, in the company and uh, be, was appointed chief growth officer. So I ran our growth business, but also all of our renewables um, generating business and natural gas business and our trade floor uh, a few years ago and uh, became the president of uh, Transalta Renewables and then eventually became the chief operating officer of the company. And then uh, a few months ago in on April 1st, I, uh, Dawn uh, stepped down and uh, mm -hmm. I replaced her with CEO. So that's the journey. Who would have known? Did I plan that? No. <laughs> but uh, it, uh, it's a really interesting sector, as you know, uh, yeah. Francis. It's, uh, and, and it's an exciting sector because when I look at kind of the energy transformation happening all over the world, yeah. um, both from an efficiency, I think, and just from an environmental perspective, there is a ton of runway uh, for our industry. And, uh, you know, it's an exciting uh, time, I think. And, you know, it's interesting being based in Calgary, mm -hmm. the oil and gas sector has traditionally been a big, you know, draw for our, you know, younger graduates from whether it's tech schools, universities, wh whatever it is. And it's kind of, at least from a Transalta perspective, neat to see how companies like ours are, are certainly much more uh, in favor as, um, you know, we're working to define some of those future pathways from an energy perspective. And I'm sure, other companies, other member companies of the CA are experiencing the same same sort of thing. Yeah. Hey, let's talk about some of those pathways. Uh, you've been quoted as saying that Transalta, with respect to, to the, the carbon neutrality of the future, Transalta has pathways to get there. Talk a little bit about what some of those pathways are and what they look like. How far away are they? Or, or have we started down some of those pathways already? I yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great way um, to do it. So I tend to think of it. Uh, Francis in kind of three buckets and um, and you know whether it's three years five years seven years it depends in fact I think the 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 earlier buckets are shorter term and yeah. tenure yeah. and then you know as you go further out they get longer sort of temporally as you, as you go out so um, for for me the three phases would be the first one is decarbonization and that's the phase we're in now yeah um, the second phase at least from from my perspective and it's evolving too is more around carbon capture. Uh, mm -hmm. carbon capture and storage. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the first phase, uh, the final phase uh, rather would be, you know, do we have any revolutionary future technologies? Do we have any uh, uh, transformative renewable storage projects where we can go and really fully decarbonize uh, electricity? And that and that's more the wild card, you know, getting that yep. to a place where it's uh, less expensive. So we're in that first phase. Um, you know, we will be done all of our coal to gas conversions. Uh, uh, two are done. Um, yeah. and, uh, and we're part owners of Shearness. So, so those are there as well. And then we have one left, which is our key pill three, which is going to take place, uh, this, uh, uh, fall. Um, we are evaluating, evaluating a gas repowering, 
mm-hmm. for the middle part of the decade. But but that is a significant reduction on a megawatt for megawatt basis in in emissions. You know, our coal units probably would have emitted, oh gosh, 1.1 tons, 1.2 tons of CO2 per megawatt hour right. that they generated. Our our coal to gas or efficient coal to gas units uh, will be half that. Uh, 0.55, 0.6. So a significant reduction uh, in emissions there. So that's the first phase. Um, The second phase, at least for our company, um, really a focus on uh, building out new wind, building out new solar. Uh, We've announced uh, two new wind farms uh, that we're developing here in Alberta. One was uh, our our garden plane, 130 megawatts. Mm -hmm. Pamela stepped in as a a PPA counterparty for that, a a great Alberta company. We're very... um, proud to partner with them. And, and we're in the process of building our Windrise project, which is over 200 megawatts uh, in the province. So those are pretty big investments for us. And we have um, advanced stage projects over 500 megawatts of wind uh, in the US that we're working hard to bring uh, on stream. Um, and uh, also a lot of growth opportunities in Australia. Uh, and, and a lot of the mining companies there are really struggling to meet their ESG uh, measures. In so Australia? We're in them, Australia? In Australia. Okay. Yeah, in Western yeah. Australia. Yeah. You know, remote operations, often okay. diesel, or, you yep. know, they're quite thermal. Yep. And, um, you know, we're looking at doing hybrid solutions for them where we pair, you know, renewables and storage yep. to kind of reduce their emissions profile. And uh, we're excited about the work that we're doing uh, there and actually hope to be in a position to announce uh, a project soon, fingers crossed, mm-hmm. uh, uh, there along those lines and see a lot of runway there. So so we continue to see the renewables build out and and kind of a combination of storage and, and renewables. We also built um, about a year ago now, uh, our first uh, industrial scale uh, storage project uh, in Southern Alberta, our mm-hmm. um, wind charger project. And um, that's that's worked out very, very well for us uh, um, and uh, and we continue to look at adding more storage to existing, certainly renewables facilities that we have. So I kind of see that as kind of moving into that second phase, and we continue to sort of monitor developments on long duration flow batteries and CCS. Mm-hmm. CCS is expensive though, yeah. so you know when I think of um, uh, you know if you build a combined cycle plant, gas plant, for example, for let's say a billion dollars or or a billion mm-hmm. billion and a half, mm-hmm. um, the CCS facilities are probably 800 to a billion dollars on top of that right uh, to capture that so when you think of the you know just the economics of the plant and the kind of investment that you need it's it's considerable I mean it's uh it is a it is a big deal and and a lot of work is being done around that and then you know when you get out into the 20 um, 30s we do think that storage pump storage long duration batteries renewables and hydrogen I think mm-hmm. uh, Francis yeah. are going to need to be part of the solution uh to that um Hydrogen's pretty expensive right now. Yeah. Um, you know, blue hydrogen, I mean, green hydrogen would be many, many times more expensive than natural gas. Uh, even blue hydrogen is more expensive. I mean, some of the work that we have done would show that it's more expensive, at least today, mm-hmm. as a fuel source, setting aside all the infrastructure that would need to be, you know, rebuilt because yep. it's not like, um, you know, you can just unplug the gas and plug in the hydrogen. I'll come back to that in a second. Mm. Uh, it, 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 you know, it is more expensive even with a $170 carbon price. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we're very focused on, on low cost, reliable and clean. And I think people can't forget that low cost element for right. our industry, for our consumers. That's a key mantra for our company, but, but there's a lot of work being done on, um, on hydrogen and, 
you know, hopefully it comes through as uh, as a fuel source. Just a couple things on on that one. Uh, you know, we, we're often asked, why don't you blend hydrogen, for example, with natural mm-hmm. gas? Can you do that? And the answer is we can. But um, only to a certain degree, right? Correct. And, and for example, in our coal to gas units, we think it's probably 25, 30%, something like mm. that, Francis. And, mm. and the, the secret about hydrogen is you don't get the emission savings. So for example, it isn't linear. So oh. it's not like if you blend at 30%, you save 30% of the CO2. Okay. If you blend 30%, you might save 10% of the CO2. Ah. You've got to get to like 80% before it becomes linear and becomes 80-80, if you see what I'm saying. Gotcha. So, so you kind of have to get to a place where you're sort of replacing uh, the generation. That's going to require quite an investment, quite a yeah. quite a build-out uh, of the generation to get there. So, um, you know, we'll see how it goes. But, you know, I always think of Alberta... In January and February, and Francis, you and I have talked about this before. And, huh? Yeah, you know, and, you know, and look, it's happened. I think three years in a row now, where you go for stretches of time. We saw what happened in Texas. Texas. Year. I mean, that that Absolutely. cold began here. Yeah, and we we were uh, we had a much more robust system in terms of you know how the units ran in that cold. <laughs> but in February, if it's minus thirty. Um, there isn't a lot of daylight, as you know, so yep. solar generation becomes challenged, let alone, you know, snow cover and all the rest of it. Yep. Um, secondly, there's no wind. Yeah. I mean, if it's really, really cold, yep. there is no wind. I mean, I remember every day you'd get up and you'd look and you'd see like two megawatts, three megawatts of wind, and, you know, there's well over a thousand megawatts mm-hmm. of a wind installed in the province and you would get, you know, handful yeah. of megawatts, always frustrating when they weren't transaltas, but <laughs> They're very small. So, so, you know, you could run hydro, but even hydro has icing issues. So if it, you know, but for that natural gas generation or something that can, you know, provide that baseload, it's not for an hour, it's for, for weeks, um, potentially that's the challenge. And, and, um, and that's where, you know, I think fully decarbonizing generation, at least in, you know, the jurisdictions like ours in Saskatchewan that like, as you know, every province built its power around their comparative resource advantage. Mm-hmm. And ours was natural gas and coal and, and uh, Alberta's water poor, certainly compared to uh, BC and Manitoba and Quebec, uh, certainly even Ontario. So, so it, that's the challenge uh, yeah. for this jurisdiction is, you know, how do you, how do you get that reliability? Yeah. Uh, at a reasonable cost. Well, and it's not it's not unique uh, to to your jurisdiction either. When when Ken Hartwick from OPG uh, uh, came on the podcast uh, and he was talking about their 2040 plan, um, they they still recognize that there there may be a requirement for for natural gas for peaking purposes, and therefore carbon capture's got to be part of their their long term picture. Um, yeah. So what is you mentioned? Some of these things are are kind of wild cards. And that, that was actually a term that the Canadian Institute of Climate Choices uh, used. They, they you know, said that we've got sure bets and we've got wild cards uh, when, when thinking about meeting our you know, 2030 and our 2050 commitments. So how much of the future falls into the sure bets category? Uh, and then how much of Transalta's you know, road to that 2050 neutrality is going to be those wild cards, those, those, those uh, revolutionary technologies that will evolve, that, that will uh, come forward? Yeah, that aren't it's here a, yet. It, it's a it's a great question, and um, I've got kind of a um, a two part answer to it, maybe Francis. So mm-hmm. so and 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 one of them is an answer as it relates to the system, and one of them is an answer relates as it relates to Transalta as a company that right. you know is within the system. So for us, 
um, you know, given the transformation that we see just from a customer demand perspective for renewables, mm -hmm. there is lots of runway for solar development, new wind development, adding, you know, storage to that. And that's existing technology. Right. So, so, so we're there. Uh, frankly, it's improving all of the time. I mean, I know there's been some supply chain issues and certainly some costs that, that have gone up it, it uh, you know, as we get out of the pandemic and, and economic recovery is sort of accelerated. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, you know, our, our company operates from the viewpoint of sort of convictions and our conviction is that the demand for renewables will go up. Right. Um, carbon pricing will continue to go up. The demand for storage is going to continue to go up. The cost of both renewables and storage will continue to decline. And for the foreseeable future, we think that natural gas will play an important role in each of the three major jurisdictions in which we operate, being Canada, the U.S. and, and mm -hmm. Australia, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, CCS, just shifting gears, I mean, we are we are exploring that and, and we're exploring that in terms of, you know, what is the cost, what is... Um, what, what would the technical requirements be? Um, you know, how can you pay for it? Uh, you know, make sure that once the investment is made, you can get you can get a return uh, on the investment. Um, and and you know how how um, um, how will how will the CCS uh, be injected? How does it have to be transported? You know, how, are there any byproducts? Mm -hmm. What works? All of that is. I mean, there are examples uh, of it all over the world, but I think there's more work to do in terms of reducing that cost and kind of dealing with the regulatory framework for that. Candidly, I'm personally concerned as well about just, you know, societal um, expectations around it. So, uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me that 10 years from now, people would look at elements of CCS and maybe, you know, question uh, its suitability any longer. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I worry about it to a certain extent being seen as being transitional, if you see what I mean. We're okay. going to use it, we're yeah. going to capture it. Um, you're injecting it, you know, are there leaks? What is, mm -hmm. what is, what, you know, what, what are the implications of that system from beginning to end? And, and it's just everything I'm seeing in terms of where, you know, society is going. It's just something that, that I think, you know, we stay in mind. Batteries, um, there's still work to do on yeah. batteries, Francis. I mean, yeah. I, you know, we, we've been doing some stuff with, um, some folks in, um, one of the universities in the U S and, and, uh, uh, trying to collaborate and stay on top of things. I know the, the labs in the U S, uh, the U S government backed labs, uh, mm -hmm. are spending tons of money on it. Um, the costs are highish, uh, yeah. still, and yeah. uh, the duration is, you know, short. So as a peaker, short-term peaker, ancillary services, all those yep. kinds of things, yep. candidly as an arbitrage tool, which is what I think we probably see it being used more of mm -hmm. uh, right now, um, pretty solid. But in terms of, you know, dealing with that issue, we were talking about that, uh, you know, intermittency, which is more of a system issue yeah. as opposed to a Transalta company issue. Um, I think there's work to be done. I think pump storage is way better. Yeah. At that, and we have a large potential pump storage project, um, you know, it could be up to 900 megawatts, which could be like a mini battery effectively for the province, something like that, you know, which would run for hours. Right. Um, um, something like that would be important. And then hydrogen, gosh, um, look, I, I, I think, you know, some of the um, turbine manufacturers and whatnot are, are advancing uh, plans on that. And, um, you know, I think we'll, 
see elements of that becoming more and more available and getting be better and better. But, you know, generating it, transporting it, um, blue hydrogen, green hydrogen is going to be tougher still. Yeah, yeah. Um, th that's a bit more out there for, <laughs> for us. And as a company, you know, as a medium-sized company, in all honesty, um, you've got to be pretty careful with your bets. It's not like um, we can do much in the way of, of um, you know, principal or prime kind of R&D. We tend to... Oh, yeah, that's expensive. Yeah. Very expensive, right? Yeah. So, so we're, you know, we're trying to partner with people and keep abreast of what's uh, uh, going on. So, you know, do we find ways to grow as a company and diversify our cash flows all the while while we're um, decarbonizing? Yeah, for sure. Um, but if you look at the system, you know, Alberta, you name your jurisdiction, um, how do you get that clean baseload generation that you need um, from time to time? That's yeah. the challenge. So that's a fair amount of uh, challenges that we put on the table. What about yeah. the other side of that coin? Are there, are there, is there a, a best kept secret about, you know, the, the, the upside of um, what's being done to, uh, to try and meet the climate commitments that, uh, that we're working towards? Yeah, I, you know, look, I think, um, you know, adding, um, so there isn't a single thing, but, but I do think that, um, as I said earlier, when I talked about our convictions as a company, just, you know, the cost of renewables continues to go uh, down. I think, uh, you know, distributed generation is interesting and, mm -hmm. and we're watching that as, uh, as it continues to evolve. And, and candidly, Francis, I think just adding storage uh, to things. Mm -hmm. I mean, adding storage to your solar, adding storage to your wind, uh, adding storage to hydro. Uh, you know, in, in, uh, in, in our case, for example, as I look out into the uh, future, I mean, those are the kinds of things that, that I think we're pretty, pretty excited about. To a certain extent, our coal to gas conversions are kind of an interesting, you know, relatively simple, but still uh, an interesting way that we've been able to extend the life while remo removing um, emissions uh, in the province, and it's worked out very, very well. So, you know, I don't know that there's a single bullet. Um, you know, people talk about small, you know, modular nukes. Uh, yeah. um, you know, that's not something our company has any capability in. Um, but, you know, I don't know. Uh, you know, when you look out into the 2030s and 2040s, yeah. um, you know, maybe, maybe, that, maybe that'll have a role to play as well. Um, the one thing I think that, yeah, I mean, you know, I haven't chatted about it is I think, you know, you know, my, my, for my observations would be, there's been a lot of talk about targets in Canada, you know, mm -hmm. what should they be, what should we do? Um, I think there's been significantly less discussion about pathways um, yeah. to yeah. meet, to meeting those targets. Uh, and, you know, where, where I think we're standing now and, you know, given how long it takes to permit, things and get them done and make those kind of bets. It's not easy getting from where we are to where we need to go uh, by 2030. And then the, the third thing is, I'm, I'm not sure, I don't know, Francis, what your views would be. I, I just, I'm not sure we've engaged Canadians uh, yeah. in that debate. Like, what does it mean for the way that you live and the way that you consume and, you know, what you drive, what your, um, you know, what your home is like, mm -hmm. how you heat it. Uh, how you travel, all those things, how cities are designed. I mean, we, you know, oh, all yeah. our cities basically yeah. have been built yeah. with a bar, right? Uh, yeah. You know, I always, I always chuckle with uh, our family in Europe and, 
and friends that I have in Europe and they, you know, just say, oh, you guys just have to rely on public transit. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, you guys, your <laughs> cities were built in a different era and you have high densities and short distances. That's not, <laughs> that's, that's not, not the situation here. Yeah. No. And, and it isn't, you know, that isn't the case in Ottawa and it certainly isn't the case in, in Calgary yeah. uh, or Edmonton or, or any of the prairie cities, or, frankly, yeah. or yeah. Toronto. I mean, any of our big cities, right. I mean, they're yeah. spread over um, hundreds, literally of kilometers. Yeah. Tough to do. Um, yeah. And, and we've divided where we live from where we work. Right. Um, so, so we, ha- I don't think we've had that debate. So it's sort of an abstract discussion. Yeah. And, and, and I think we, it, we're not going to meet our targets unless people understand the changes that are required in the costs potentially of, of getting there. I think I, I just, a, just, a just a view. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, hearing that from, from others as well uh, that, you know, as a, as a sector, the electricity sector is going to meet the 2030 target. In fact, we've already met the 2030 target, but, We're there. <laughs> but, but society as a whole hasn't even come to terms with what it's going to, uh, what it's, what's going to be required uh, for the economy as a whole to, to meet 2030. Uh, and as a country, we've not met any of our climate targets in the past. So, No, I mean, I like we've treaded water, really. I think it's about the best that you'd, yeah. you'd say for us over the last few years, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, at least at least our sector, John, is, is doing uh, what it can yeah. to, to support the transition. Um, but, 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 but the low-hanging fruit in our sector is starting to come to an end, though, I yes. think, at the point. Yeah. Uh, and, and, um, you know, that's just the reality. Yeah. Uh, certainly I think more electrification is going to, mm-hmm. to play, play a role. But when I think of, you know, heating and buildings and transportation and some of the other sectors that, uh, uh, you know, certainly in my own home province, um, you know, the petrochemical sector as well. I mean, those are, those are, those are mountains, I think, to, yeah. to, to move. Yeah, quite right. John, one of the things I, I ask people to come onto the podcast is about a book. Um, a, book. a book, yeah, either a book that uh, that uh, that you're reading or a book that you've recently read that you would recommend to the uh, to the listener. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, so uh, what what book uh, should the listener put on uh, put on their bookshelf? Oh my God, Francis, you've sort of called me out now. I'm a little bit of a nerd when it comes to these uh, uh, kinds of things. So I know um, that's why I'm asking. Yeah, you. <laughs> yeah. So, so look, I'm reading, uh, I'm reading a book on Byzantium right now. So I'm not oh. sure that that would be sort of uh, mainstream. But look, when, when um, maybe two recommendations. There's a book that I uh, come back to from time to time and uh, read periodically. And I love it. Um, and actually, I think it won the, the Pulitzer Prize years ago. I think it was written in the, the early 60s, maybe 1963, um, is The Guns of August uh, by Barbara, uh, by Barbara um, Tuchman, who um, really recounts that first month of World War I and right. uh, talks about the lead up uh, to that war and uh, just the, the the poor, how can I put it, the fog of decision-making, the inadvertent mm-hmm. sort of mistakes and errors and calamities and, and just the lessons around things spiraling out of, you know, out of control yeah. uh, and things escalating in a way that, that results in a lot of sort of human tragedy. So a lot of, um, a lot of challenges. I think it was a book that, um, uh, John Kennedy actually loved and actually imposed on most of the people in his administration mm-hmm. um, 
to read and I think to help guide their behavior during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Anyway, it's a great book, very readable for what is effectively nonfiction. The other book, at least for people in our industry uh, that I read recently was um, the Mark Ellsberg um, book, uh, Blackout, um, which is a fictional account. You've probably heard of it um, before. Um, And I think it was originally written in German, I think around 2016 or so, and really talks talks about, and I, and I won't sort of spill it for folks, but it talks about uh, the shutdown of the grids, basically, I think, in North America and Europe. And uh, uh, kind of a, it's a bit of a thriller, effectively, uh, a fictional account, which is kind of a fun, easy read for, for folks. You know, it, 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 it occurs to me, and it's actually a little bit surprising that this is the podcast number 41 uh, and the blackout hadn't been suggested by anybody yet. It's there you go. sitting on my shelf. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Blackout and the guns of August. Okay. Yep. That's it. Fantastic. John, thank you very much. Really, uh, really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast and, and well, chatting. Francis, it, it's been, it's been a real joy, but I'm not going to let you get a, get away with it without you telling me your book. <laughs> I'm, I'm turning the table on you. Well, I'm I'm a big fan of, of science fiction, and so uh, I'm uh, actually rereading a book uh, from a number of years ago. Uh, I think it's probably the third or fourth time uh, that I've read it. It's called "The Moon uh, Is a Harsh Mistress." Okay. Uh, uh, by the name oh, escapes I'm horrible. me. I, I am horrible at at at, at remembering the. One of the ones with the, the initials in the middle. Robert A. Heinlein. Ah, there you go. Yeah. So Got Robert it. A. Heinlein. I'm, I'm a I'm a I'm a fan of 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 Heinlein's uh, Heinlein's various books, and The Moon Is a Harsh Mistress is just one that I I thoroughly enjoyed, uh, and I've I've read it a number of times, and I've gone back uh, back to read it. Perfect. <laughs> John, great to talk. I couldn't let, I couldn't couldn't let you get away with that. So so there you go. No, the pleasure was all mine, uh, Francis. Really appreciate you um, uh, giving us the opportunity. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Flux Capacitor. Tune in for future podcasts in our Net Zero 2050 series, which includes industry, government, and stakeholder guests further discussing the implications of and the pathways to the Net Zero future. And as always, let's continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.